How to Play, Episode 15W, How to Win Kalis. Hello and welcome to the How to Play podcast, coming to you from the How to Play studios in Buffalo, New York. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, and this podcast is about learning and teaching games. If you like the show, join and participate in our guild at BoardGameGeek. For more information about all the How to Play podcast episodes, the corresponding teaching guides, and the discussion forums, refer to the How to Play Geek list, for which you can find a link there at the Guild. You can also check out our website, www.howtoplaypodcast.com, where you can support the show with a PayPal donation, and I can be contacted at the Guild on BoardGameGeek or directly at my email address, howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This episode is part of How to Play's How to Win series. The How to Win series of podcasts will take a game previously covered on How to Play and go beyond the basic rules to explore some advanced strategy. This podcast is intended to be used by experienced players of the game who are looking to take their gameplay of that game to the next level. Now let's get to today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to the How to Play podcast. This is the first in a potential series of spinoff podcasts called the How to Win series. In this series I take a game I've already covered here on How to Play and dig deeper into it with some discussion of some advanced strategies. This is an idea that's been bubbling around in my head for over a year, and so I'm excited to finally record the first episode of, hopefully many more, of the How to Win series. The opportunity for this came up when we were getting upon the anniversary of our first calibration. Last May, we did the calibration, where I encouraged as many people around the world as possible to play a game of Kalis on a specific date. Well, I figured it was so much fun, let's do it all over again with Calibration 2, The Provo Strikes Back. That's right. I hope many, many people will get back into the Kalis love. If you have yet to dive into Kalis, I encourage you to use this excuse to dive in and learn Kalis and appreciate this great game. First of all, if you've never played Kalis or listened to episode 15 of the How to Play podcast, well, that's step one. I encourage you to go back, listen to episode 15, and get one or two games of this under your belt. So you'll be all ready for the big calibration on May 16th to May 22nd. What is the calibration? Well, it's simply an event intended to spread the love of this great game, Kalis, and to promote and encourage its play. I hope you'll join me in this effort and either give Kalis a try or help in your game group or around the world to encourage people to play more of this great game. If you'd like to participate, I hope you'll sign up on the official petition that you agree to play one game of Kalis. It'll be very simple. You'll just have to click a link and write your name and, and click sign. And we'll see if we can get 100, 200, who knows how many people to play Kalis from May 16th to May 22nd. Maybe you've played a game or two of this and you're ready to take things to the next level. Well, that's where this podcast comes into play. The How to Win series is intended for people who already know the game and are looking to take their play to the next level. Maybe they want to compete online on the great implementation there at BSW. There are some really good players, and putting in a win there really requires a great knowledge of this game. Hopefully this podcast can help. Or maybe in your game group you have a few Kalis experts and you want to get caught up to speed. Well, this podcast is here to help. In this show, I'm going to tell you everything I know about playing this game well. So, there may be a bit of a spoiler feature here if you're a person who really wants to sort of learn the game on your own, or you're learning the game new with a group of people, then you may not want to go through and pick up all this strategy knowledge, as it might just put you too far ahead of the other players. But like I said, if you want to take the game to a next level, play the game more competitively, then that's what this podcast is here to do. So this series of podcasts goes on the assumption that I'm qualified to give you enough strategy to tell you how to win. Well, I'm not the greatest Kalis player out there, But I have played the game almost 200 times, so that gives me, I feel, enough experience to share with you some advanced strategy and tips for playing this game. Now, some of you skeptics out there might be saying, well, if you tell me everything there is to know about strategy, then why do I need to go play the game afterwards? 
You know, I agree to a certain extent. There are a lot of games out there that if you read too much about the strategy of it, you've pretty much ruined the game for yourself. I don't think that's as much the case here with Kalos because of the depth of the game. Even though I'm going to give you some of the most popular and most successful advanced strategies to the game, you still have to execute those strategies, which takes a lot of practice, especially when you get to play against more and more challenging opponents. Don't worry about having all the strategy ruined by listening to this show. You'll still have plenty to learn and explore. And that's really why I am so invested in putting forth this calibration again and putting out the second podcast on Kalis because I think there's so few games in our hobby that are worthy of as much replayability as Kalis. So let's get to it, shall we? Let's take our Kalis game to the next level. But first, let me explain how the How to Win series of podcasts will be organized. I'll start with the basics, going over a few integral concepts of playing the game well. In part two, I'm going to get specific into some overarching strategies that you might try to go after to try to win this game. In part three, I'll get more specific with a few tips and tricks uh, going into how the game changes with different numbers of players and getting into some of those small strategic tricks that some of the best players know about that you should be aware of. And then finally, in part four, I'll try to pull it all together and hopefully leave you armed with confidence to tackle your next game of Kalos. So let's get started. Part 1. The Basics. There are two fundamental concepts when you're going into this game, and those are prioritization and balance. Prioritization in any worker placement game is key. When you're placing that first and second worker, you know there's probably three or four or five spots that you want, but you really need to think about which do I have to go to first, which will depend on a lot of other factors, mostly at looking at other players and figuring out where they're going to go first, but also knowing some of the relative strengths of some of the items on the board, and hopefully this podcast is going to help you with that. And then the next thing is balance. You really need to make sure that you have money because money is power in this game. But there's other elements that you can't fall behind in as well. And you gotta make sure that you're collecting resource cubes, and if you fall too far behind in the turn order for too many turns, it could really hamper your game. So having a balance of all those things throughout the game is key. Keeping a good amount of money, having cubes, and don't fall too far behind in the turn order. But of all those three things, the most important in this game is money. Don't ever run out of money. Extra money means extra power. You're going to get to play more of your workers, and you're going to have more control over the provost. If you run out of money, you're going to fall behind in all of the other things. Not only money, but also in the amount of cubes compared to the other players, and you'll probably have a hard time getting back in the turn order. So, some of the more underrated buildings that experienced players know are key are that trading post, the special building that gives you three money, and the marketplaces, the wooden building that sells for six money. Even a building that's very underrated is the pink marketplace, the one that sells one cube for four money. Now it's possible to just over-focus on this and get so focused on that so that all you're doing is collecting money. But most of the time, because all the other players will be competing for these money spots as well, it's pretty difficult to have too much money. Another important concept is in your spending of money, and that is knowing when to pass with playing your workers because the workers cost money, and of course wisely spending money to move that provost. Let's talk about those one at a time. When to pass. I know you want to go more places. I know there's that one more spot that you need, but most of the time, if especially early in the game, if you only have $2 left, you're probably going to have to pass. If you get yourself down to just $2, and keeping in mind your future money, you haven't put yourself on that spot that gives you three money or a place where you're going to sell a cube to get money, if you're not getting any more money in the following turns, and you only have two money left, you probably have to stop. Because this will give you, of course, you'll get two money at the beginning of next turn, and you'll have four workers for the next turn, which is not ideal, but it's a bearable amount of workers. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule. There are times where opportunity arises that you just have to go for it. 
that you have to just spend all your money because that opportunity is there and you're gonna bankrupt yourself because you know that you're gonna have a really great turn. Now usually when you do that, hopefully you're getting some money in that following turn, but there's sometimes even you're getting no money, but the opportunity is so great to get so many cubes and, and so many points that you have to just bankrupt yourself. That does happen every once in a while, and then you're gonna work yourself into what I call a rebuilding turn. Sometimes you'll have these great turns where you'll roll in tons of tons of cubes and points, but then you're broke and you're last in the turn order. So the next turn you only have three or four workers, you'll you'll spend them, you know, taking the first place in the turn order, taking the three dollars, passing and getting out, because that's really all you can do is climb yourself back into the game. Hopefully that overextension was worth it. And then let's talk about spending money on the provost. You have to be really careful about when you dump two or three money into moving the provost. Sometimes it can be a very strong move. Especially depends on your cash on hand and how much cash you're going to get in the following turn. But if you are pretty broke, you have to be careful about moving that. Beginning players often dump a lot of money into moving that provost that they don't have to spend. So before you move that, two things. Think about, do I have this money to spend? Am I going to have enough money in the following round? And the second thing is, is it even worth it? Many times you'll see new players move something back three only to have another player move it forward three. You need to pay attention to the cash on hand of the other players. Sometimes you'll be counting on someone to help you move it forward or back and that person will not have any money. So before you dump money into the provost, you need to consider, is it worth it? And am I going to get the result that I'm hoping for here? The next thing you need to be doing in this game is as the road continues and those better actions become available, you need to be pushing your actions forward towards that line. Because too many beginning players I find try to play it safe and play towards the back. And then they keep playing towards the back because they get so worried about that provost. If you're going to do well in this game, you're going to need to know how to play that line to know how far forward you can push your actions. And a lot of this depends on how much cash you have related to some of the other players. Some of it also depends on if you can intermingle yourself in with some of the other rich players or just with two or three other players, then you're probably safe. But you can't just hang back at those pink buildings or those wooden buildings because you're going to fall too far behind in the cube race. So you need to push towards that line of where that provost is. And that's one of the great parts about this game is you have to, you have to play in that danger area and that danger area gets very interesting. How do you play in that danger area safely? It's always good when you are the last man to pass. Of course, you have the last option to move the provost. Obviously, if you have a good amount of money, you're going to be able to control things and feel more comfortable pushing towards the front. If you're in that inn, you might have a good opportunity to play last in the round. That'll give you control of that line where the provost is. And we talked about sticking with other players. And of course, you have the other side of the provost, and that is punishing other players when they cross that line when they shouldn't. And so that's another way to look at it is if you're collecting money and a lot of the other players are playing towards that front of the line to say, yeah, go ahead, play that line. And then, of course, you play on the Merchant's Guild to push the provost back, and then you have the money to back it up to keep that provost from going forward. Another fun play is the dummy maneuver, and a lot of new players fall for this. If you have the cash and you have the power, throw one of your workers way towards the front, even past the provost, to signal that you're going to play you're gonna play forward or that you really want that spot forward. And then play a lot of your future workers way back behind the provost and then you can trick the other players into playing towards the front once you've trapped them play in the merchant's guild to move it back and they'll look at you like huh i thought you wanted that spot and then you say nah i don't really need that spot and then they say bad words a common mistake that i hope that none of you make is remembering that the building tiles happen in order down the road you really got to think ahead through the turn and make sure that you're going to have the cubes that you need in the certain areas. A common mistake is to go in the jousting arena without the money or the cloth. You need to have that in hand before you get any of those things. 
Or another common mistake is to play in the carpenter to build a building and you're getting the resources on a tile after that carpenter and so you don't have the things to buy it. So you really have to think through and make sure you're going to have the resources required. But those are some of the fundamentals of the game. The game is a lot about balance, making sure that you have the money, the cubes, and staying up in the turn order prioritizing each move to make sure that your first move is the move that you have to go to first. Don't run out of money if you can manage it. Money should always be a high priority. And keep finding ways to play the danger line. Keep finding ways to play forward or find ways to punish other players for playing forward when they really shouldn't. So those are things you're going to have to consider on a turn-to-turn -turn basis. But now let's look at some long-term plans with some overarching strategies. <laughs> Part two, overarching strategies. All right, so there's a lot of nitty gritty decisions to make in each turn. But beyond that, you should have a direction as far as what you're trying to do long term. And if you're thinking about what to do long term, in this game, you need to have an idea of how you plan to build tiles. There are effectively two different ways to do that. You can do it the traditional route, which is building using the tiles on the board. Or a more popular route is to build a lot of your buildings through climbing the building track from getting favors. A common myth in this game is that since there's four tracks for getting favors, each one of those should open up a possible strategy, right? VPs, money, cubes, or the building track. This is just simply not true. Yes, all four of these tracks can be used in the game and can be useful in certain situations. But only two of these tracks are really viable as a long-term strategy to win the game. And how you've decided to build your tiles, which is a decision you'll have to make pretty early in the game, will decide which of these tracks that you're going to focus on. We're going to talk about these two major strategies in great detail. And these are the two ways in which to build tiles. Are you going to choose to be a favor builder, one who gets their buildings from getting favors from the castle? Or are you going to be a tile builder? a person who builds their buildings from the tiles down on the board. And which of those you do will help you decide which of those favor tracks to focus on as well. If you plan to build with favors, obviously you're going to focus on the building favor track. If you're going to build with the tiles on the board, then you'll focus on the victory point favor track. But let's really dig into those two different strategies and learn how they work. We'll start with favor building. Major strategy number one. Building with favors. Building with favors is a very strong and powerful strategy. It's also quite popular among experienced players. It's especially strong in games with fewer players. The big idea of building with favors is to set yourself up by the mid-game to start cranking out buildings. Once you've set this up, you can start in the mid-game cranking out those powerful stone buildings, and then the late game get lawyers and eventually blue buildings, without all the fuss of having to try to activate them on the building tiles. Instead, you'll be able to build a building whenever you get a favor, either from building in the castle or from the jousting arena. The advantages that this gives you is it's almost easier to build with favors because you don't sort of need the permission of the other players. Getting down on a tile and getting it to activate and being able to do that a lot can be kind of difficult. Whereas if you build with favors, it's harder for the other players to stop you. The only way to really stop you is to build things first or to deny you from getting favors. So let's talk about how to execute this strategy in the early, mid, and late game. Now the early game, no matter what strategy that you choose, the first few turns of this game can very well determine how well you do in this game. Of the three phases, the dungeon phase is probably the most critical, but you can certainly lose the game in the other two phases as well. If you're playing a build with favor strategy, your goal is to try to build a stone farm as early as possible. Now a hindrance in this is that you're not allowed to take the third favor on the building track, the one that you really want, the one that lets you build stone buildings, until we get past that first phase. So because of that, you generally want to push the speed of the game to that second phase a little bit quicker. So the first phase is all about setting up so that you get those early favors and really setting up so that you can get that first or second or both of the stone farms. 
So really, just early in the game, you can focus on getting some cubes and getting some money. And it's also a good idea to try to stop anyone else from building traditionally from tiles on the board. Because you really want to wait for those stone buildings to build anything. And you don't want other players to clog up the front of the line with other buildings. You are going to want to get two favors in that early game. One to get that first favor on the building favor track that gives you nothing. And the second one will give you a wood building. You're probably going to build the peddler or the marketplace. You don't want to build the lawyer and the mason. These are buildings that let the other players build stuff. And since you're planning on being able to do that all on your own, you don't want to give other players that don't have that advantage ways to build things. And like I said, you may want to push that provost forward so it moves two spaces so that you get to that mid-game a bit quicker, because that's really where you're going to shine. A very common ploy in this strategy is to get all set up to get the first favor to get the first stone farm. And hopefully you have it before any of the other players because the mason isn't on the board yet. How do you do that? Well, you have to have a number of things set up ready to go for the first turn of the walls phase. So you try to pay attention to when that's going to happen. And at the end of that walls phase, you need a few things. You need to have gotten two favors from the building track, so you're all ready to take the stone building favor. Then you want to have a cloth to get a favor, and you're going to need a food cube with which to buy that stone building. And ideally, you want to get all set up to take the first jousting arena right as we get into that walls phase. This is a very common move amongst experienced Kalos players. You get yourself in the first order turn position, you have a cloth to buy a favor, and you have a food so that you can use that to get the stone farm. Then as your first move in the first turn of the walls phase, you plunk down on the jousting arena, and that way you're going to have the first building that's built in that next round, and it's a stone farm, and hopefully it's pretty early. And that's going to give you a very nice advantage. And the last piece of that is sometimes you want to make sure you get in that first turn order position for this turn so that someone else who has the same plan as you doesn't get to do it first. Now, if someone beats you to that, then plan B, of course, is to get enough for a batch to go to the castle so that you can get your favor from the castle to build a stone farm. Now, if you're really lucky, you can set up to do this all over again on the following turn. Get another food in a cloth and set up to be first and take the jousting arena again and just do it all over again. And in the mid-game, as often as people will let you, that's usually a good strategy. First of all, you want to get stone farms. The earlier, the better. I define early as anything before that gold mine. Any building before that gold mine is going to get played on quite a bit. Once you get past that gold mine, then you're probably looking for other stuff to build. Instead of the farms, you might switch over to some of the six-point buildings. Again, don't build the architect, the thing that lets people build the blue prestige buildings. Why? Because you don't need it. You're going to build prestige buildings from the favor track. You don't want to give the other players a, a way to do that without the advantage that you've already developed for yourself. Also in the mid game, you might pick up a gold here or there, but the main thing you're trying to do is just get those favors again and build stone buildings for points. This mid game is really where this building with favor strategy should really be shining and cranking. And then in the late game, you're going to set up so that you can probably build at least one blue building. You're going to try to get at least two batches into the castle so that you get a favor to build a prestige building. Of course, before you do that, you have to make sure that you build a green residence so you have a place to put that blue building. So that's basically what you're going to be doing in the late game. Getting a couple residences, maybe building a few more stone buildings. Make sure you get a few batches in the castle and don't get shut out so that you can build that big blue building. The whole goal of this strategy is to not let other people build things and to get the stone farms early. If you manage to get two stone farms before the gold mine, it's very hard to defeat you if you play well from that point. And it's good to keep in mind as you're playing against other people who are doing this strategy. Be aware that that's what they're trying to do, and if they accomplish it, they're going to be tough to beat. So that, in a nutshell, is the building with favors strategy. You're trying to get to that mid-game so you can start cranking out the powerful stone farm buildings. And then you set up for building one or two prestige buildings at the end. Now, though this is a very powerful strategy, it's not unstoppable, especially if everybody tries to do it. It's fun to counter this strategy with the building with tiles strategy. Let's talk about how to play a game in which you build with tiles. Major strategy number two, building with tiles. I think that building with tiles is a strategy that it's a little bit harder to pull off, especially in the three-player game. It does work better in the four- and five-player game. 
But it's a strategy you're going to have to be aware of because if all the other players are trying to build with favors, you're going to want to do this strategy as it will become more viable. Basically, what you're trying to do is the antithesis of what the person who's building with favors is trying to do. You're trying to delay getting to that mid-game phase, the walls phase, for as long as possible and build a ton of tiles to clog up that front of the line with buildings that belong to you. This is definitely tricky and has its challenges, so let's talk about it. In the beginning of the game, you want to build the first few buildings. It's especially good to build the first two, and if you can build four of the first five or four of the first six, you're going to be in pretty good shape, as players will have little choice than to give you point after point after point, because they'll have to use your buildings to have somewhere to go. You're going to want that early game to last as long as possible, because those people building with favors can't build the stone buildings until they get to that walls phase. And you can do that, possibly. It's difficult, but it is possible. And your real goal is if you can really flood the board and get buildings all the way to the mine so when they do eventually get those stone farms, they're so late that they just don't make as much of an impact anymore. You may be tempted to build that stonemason or the lawyer early as those will give you access to build those stone buildings and such. But I recommend that your first couple of buildings should probably be the peddler in the marketplace. Why? Because everybody's going to want to use those, and they're going to have to use them over and over again, and you're going to get more points out of the deal. If you're playing against a couple of people or even three people that are doing a building with favor strategy, they're not even going to use that mason or that lawyer, and so the only person that's going to get use out of that is you. And they're going to fight you tooth and nail for you not to use them. The other thing that commonly happens is if you try to build that mason particularly, if you build it early, a lot of the other players will already be set up and have the cubes in order to utilize that, and they'll be able to take advantage of you building that. Whereas if you delay a little bit, Typically, I find you have better results, but the critical piece is you do need to get that mason and the lawyer down on the board, ideally before the gold mine. And the other thing that typically happens when you play this strategy is in that dungeon phase, often you just don't even put a batch in the castle in that first phase. Yes, you're going to take a point hit for it, but you're going to reap the rewards of it because you've spent all your resources in trying to build lots of early buildings that your opponents are going to have to use and pushed way back the line where the other players are going to eventually end up laying their buildings. So the early game is where you should really shine if you're playing this strategy. And if you don't, then you're going to be in trouble. By the mid-game, you should have the majority of those first buildings down on the board. But the downside is you'll probably have no favors, no cubes, no money, and be low on the turn order because you sort of really need to overextend yourself to get a lot of those buildings down early. So the mid-game is all about trying to start catching up on cubes, make sure you get the architect down so you can get the favor, and start heading up that victory point track on the favors. When you get favors, you're going to try to start climbing that track because at the end game, that's the only way that you're going to be able to keep pace. Since ideally, you've made the building track not as useful because you've built all the building buildings, the point track should be much more useful throughout this game. And hopefully you get to that end of that five VPs per favor and you just start cranking that by the the end of the game. At the end of the game, in order to win, a lot of times the person who plays this strategy, it looks like they're ahead and they will be ahead, but as the game goes on, it's all about you have to play very solidly because those people with the building track are going to have the edge as far as late game. And so you're just going to have to do your best to try to get enough points so that they don't catch you. In fact, in the late game, what you might end up doing is trying to push the end of the game when you slowed it down early and then push it at the end to try to finish it before those building track people catch you. The other advantage that you should have throughout the majority of the game is you should have all kinds of great free landing places that only cost you one money to use. So be sure to take advantage of that. That's really helpful in the mid-game specifically. But those early free landing spots, like if you got the peddler and the marketplace early, those can be really nice when someone does an early pass. But that is the building with tile strategy. You want to do a building rush early. You want to stall the early game, try to catch up in the mid-game, and use that victory point favor track to try to keep pace by the end of the game. Those really are the two major strategies in the game. But there's some other important concepts as well. Let's talk about a hoarding strategy. Hoarding cubes. 
All right, so no matter which of these major strategies you try, having more cubes than other people is generally pretty good. You can be what I call a cube bully. When you have that cube advantage, it really allows you to do some good things. One of the nicest things is you can hold that cube advantage over other people's heads with the castle. The other people are going to want to go in the castle, but since you have a ton more cubes than they do, then you can just wait and play the last worker that you're going to play and play it in the castle. And the other players know you're probably going to do this, but they're just wary. They don't even want to put their worker in the castle because they know that as soon as they do, or as soon as two other players do, then you're going to jump in there and say, ha, no way you guys are getting a favor. This is one strategy to stop those favor builders, is to get a lot of cubes, and when they think they're going to get another favor to build another building, you try to deny them by jumping in there. Money hoarding. So we already talked about the importance of money. You always need to be worried about getting enough money. In fact, among experienced players, you won't believe how early they go to that building that gives you three money. It's not very uncommon to see people go there for their first or second move. Not only does it give you a bump in money, it also gives you that bump in money before the moving of the provost, which is huge. Think about the effects of not having any money. Obviously, you're going to get less stuff. Not only are you going to be able to play less workers, you're going to have to play them in the worst spots. You're going to have to play them towards the back because if you play them too much towards the front, you're not going to get them. And you're not going to have any control of stopping or having any influence in someone playing towards the front of the line to get some of those choices spots. So the opposite of that is a nice position. If you have a ton of money, one strategy is you don't have to worry about turn order. You can play last because you control where that provost is going. You can sort of hang out and you could scare people into not playing towards the front and play towards the front late. And you're likely going to get that last man on the bridge because you're going to have the last piece and you have the most money. So you'll just have so much control of what happens towards the front of the line. So people talk often about hoarding cubes, but hoarding money can be a good strategy as well. Let's talk about one more unique strategy. The lawyer strategy. This is sort of a rogue strategy, but it's really neat when it works. I think this is one of the more difficult strategies to pull off in the game. In order for this to happen, someone's probably going to have to build that lawyer relatively early. And then what you try to do is you try to get on that lawyer and try to knock out all of the cube production buildings. And you don't build any more cube production buildings. So when you're through with your evilness, there's only one or two places to get cubes on the board. And so nobody can get resources. It's particularly nasty if you set up with two or three green houses and then you knock off the ways to get cloth so no one else can try to push that lawyer advantage. Everybody else will be poor because there's nowhere to get anything, but you're just going to get richer and richer because you have the advantage of more residences on the board so you'll be getting more income each turn, which leads into that money hoarding strategy I was talking about earlier. The tricky part about this is getting the lawyer on the board and getting enough cloth to make that work. Cloth is a pretty fought-after resource. Maybe if you had the wood building that gives people a lot of cloth, that might help you utilize this strategy. Just a neat little strategy to be aware of. And just an example that there's more than two ways to play this game. But those are the basics. You need to decide how you're going to build buildings, whether you're going to try to build using the favor track or try to do a building rush by building with tiles. Those are sort of the yin and yang of this game that really make it tick. Both strategies take a, a little bit to pull off. Other things to keep in mind is hoarding cubes can definitely be a great strategy or hoarding money. And if you want to try something different, you can try that clever lawyer strategy. Those are the major paths to victory in this game. Now let's look at some finer points. Part three, tips and tricks. Okay, the next thing you need to know is that this game is a completely different game with two, three, four, and five players. Most of my experience and most of the strategy in this episode should be applied to three to five player games because typically I don't play very much two player. I just, I don't think it's a great two player game. 
Some people love it. They, they love the control that it gives you, and they love that it's a quicker game. But for myself, I never really want to play this with two players again. Here's the big idea, is that the more players you add to the game, the harder everything is to get. And with two players, you can just really collect a lot of stuff. You can collect a lot of money, a lot of cubes, and a lot of favors. And to me, it almost feels a bit too easy. In terms of gameplay, what does that mean? In three players, the building favor strategy is stronger because you can use it over and over again because the buildings don't run out as fast. Also, the building with tile strategy is a little less powerful. Because there's less players in the game, it's less likely that your tiles are going to be used all the time. Whereas once you get to four and five players, there's just not enough spots to go. And once you get to those higher player numbers, people are going to almost use every building tile out there every turn. So the more buildings you have out there, and if you did that building rush and got a lot of buildings out early, that's going to pay off some more benefits in, in the higher numbered player games. So in the three player, what you typically see is you usually see like two players going for the building favors, or sometimes all the players go after that building favor strategy. Uh, but more common, you'll see two players go with building favors and the other player tries to counter that by doing a building rush. In four players, you, you typically get a good mix of that, those strategies. And five players is a total scratch for everything. Getting cubes is just so competitive. In fact, you might see people use that cube track a little bit more just as another way to get cubes. And so you're just going to have so few tile lays in a turn that you really have to carefully decide what to do. And building tiles with favors is still a pretty good strategy as you don't have to rely on that very difficult fight to sort of activate the building tiles on the board. So pay attention to the distinct differences with the different numbers of players and that might determine your strategy. Now let's talk a bit about prioritization and thinking about where to place those workers. A common misconception I see among new players is players are really worried about using other people's buildings to give them a point. You know what? Don't worry about it. If you want it, go do it. Especially with in those four or five player games, you can't be worried about who's getting that point. Because if there's two or three cubes there that are available, you have to go after them and get them. Because if you don't do it, somebody else probably will. On the flip side, sometimes it's good to avoid your own buildings, of course, to get other people to give you the points for using those buildings. Unless, of course, you really need whatever that building has. So on a finer point that shows that sometimes it's better to build the things that the other players want more than the things that you want. So with those first and second workers, what should you do with them? Getting the most cubes available on the board is usually a pretty standard move as your first or second worker. In the early game, getting that cloth and that stone, since they are the rare resources, specifically usually the cloth first because it's good for so many things. And then later in the game when there's the three resource spots available, those are usually high priorities. Also in the mid game, that jousting arena becomes tightly fought over. You're going to want to pay attention not only who wants to do that, but also who can do it. Remember, if somebody doesn't have a cloth or probably not going to go there to waste a move. Late in the game, going to the castle. Because late in the game, that's the one part of the game where you can run out of spots in going to the castle. And this is another difference with different number of players. If there's four or five players, a lot of players want to get in there and burn all their cubes. You don't want to be stuck with any cubes at the end of the game. So figure out at least one turn in the late game where, where you're going to go first to that castle to make sure that you get all the spots that you want to put your cubes into the castle. A lot of times I really like going there early, building up a lot of cubes in the mid game and early in the late game, early in that tower phase, jumping in the castle and filling up half the castle before anybody else has thought about it. Then I can say to myself, all right, I'm done building in the castle. I'm going to focus on any other way I have to get victory points, knowing that I'm never going to the castle again. And that really helps me focus for the end of the game. Not the only way to play the end game, but an effective one. While we're talking about the end game, let's get into that, shall we? You must, must plan for and or be aware when the game is going to end. 
If you don't, if someone catches you off guard and the game ends earlier than you wanted it to or longer than helps you, you will lose the game. I can tell you this from experience because I must have lost this game at least 10 to 15 times by either having the game end too soon or too late. Most tragically in the WBC semifinals. It's horrible when another player does this to you. Ends the game when you didn't think they could by filling up the castle or or by moving the provost ahead. But worse yet is when you do it to yourself. Part of this was a result of 10 hours of straight worker placement games and I was a little bit fried. But the decision was given to me in this game at the semifinals of the WBC. I had the provost in my hand. I had the final move. So effectively I could decide is the game going to end this turn or next turn. And looking at the game, I made the faulty decision of ending it early, ending that turn. What consideration is this? Who's going to have resources left? Who's going to benefit by the game going another turn? Usually the people who have a bunch of resources left that need to use them in another turn, they want the game to extend. And again, this goes back to that Favor builder versus builder with tile dichotomy. The person who's got favor buildings usually wants the game to go a bit longer because they can get more points because they can more easily build those prestige buildings. But it all depends on the current scores and how many resources all the other players have. But this is one of the most important considerations in this game. Be aware of, plan for, and or control when the game will end or not. Not only should you plan for the end of the game, you also need to plan for the end of each phase as you want to hit those favor marks. Early, it's really nice to get two. In the mid-game, getting those three batches into the castle is great because three batches gives you two favors. You really should plan on trying to get that. And most of the time in the late game, you're just building in the castle for points. But keep in mind those favors are there for 2, 4, and 6. The other side of that coin is it's good to get in there and make sure that you get some of the spots in that last section of the castle before others do. It's also a good strategy to shut other players out. If you can make a player waste a lot of cubes by filling up the whole castle before they can get in there, that is fantastic. Another typical ploy that I use is that if I have a moderate amount of cubes, say there's a person who's got a, a whole load of cubes in front of them, if I have a moderate amount at some point in the game, say in the middle of the game, I might go to that castle early, like with my second or third play, to make a statement and say, hey, I'm going to go there. You can beat me there. I know you can. But if you want to do that, you're going to have to fight me for it. Of course, if you're being that cube bully, you usually just want to hold out and then at your leisure at the end of the turn decide whether or not you want to take the castle with your myriad of cubes. Let's talk about two of the special buildings that newer players don't really know how to use. The gate The gate is sort of underrated. This is a place that you can go somewhere else after everyone else has gone. A lot of times this gate is used in connection with the castle. Either it can be used by the cube bully to sort of scare everyone away from going to the castle. And then the great thing is he doesn't even actually have to go to the castle if he doesn't want to. Or as someone who's cube poor who wants to hold out the hope that no one ends up going to the castle. And sometimes you can get a cheap castle favor that way. It can also be used if you're not really sure of someone's intentions. If you think they're trying to trick you by playing to the front of the line, or you have one move left and you're not really sure what to do with it based on where people have played, and you're going to have to pass early, this is a good place to go because you can see where everything ends up if anyone has taken the move the provost spot before you drop in your last guy. Sometimes you can get a cheap gold mine out of dropping a guy in the gate. Next, the inn. I love the inn. I think I love it more than the other players. The inn is the one where after people pass, you still only have to pay a buck to play in places. The inn is only really good in the early and mid games because afterwards people have enough money that you don't want to have to waste a guy in there. The best thing about the inn is when you have a player who's really overextended themselves and they're only going to have like one or two gold in the next turn, it's great to be in the inn because they pass early and it has sort of a waterfall effect and you sort of can get the board as your oyster. It's a beautiful thing. Even in three players, I think people think, you know, it's only good in five players and it is good in five players, but usually actually there's so few places that someone kicks you out of the inn every turn anyways. In three players, you can stay in the inn for quite a while in the early to mid game, and it can flat out win you the game. Don't underestimate the inn. Lastly, let's talk about some of the different buildings. When you buy the first building, what do you buy? 
There's all those different wood buildings to choose from. The general consensus among experienced players is to buy the peddler and the marketplace first. And just as a reminder, the, the peddler is the one that you spend two money for two cubes, and the marketplace, you turn in a cube for $6. And it doesn't even really matter which strategy you're doing. It's always generally pretty good to buy these. And that's for a number of reasons. One, they're flexible to buy. You can buy them for two wood, which is kind of nice. Secondly, they, they're worth four points as opposed to two points. Next thing is they're moderately useful buildings. People are going to want to use these because they're early and they're not going to have anywhere else to put their cubes, but they're still useful, so people are just going to want to use them. Although the two-cube guys are tempting, they're only worth two points. And the other thing, sometimes they can just they can really help your opponents by getting that many cubes. Especially because since they're your buildings, you're going to want your opponents to go there and not as much yourself to go there. And if your opponents are going there all the time, then they're going to get these double cubes and you're not. And you're going to get the point, but it doesn't really equal out. Whereas with this peddler in the marketplace, it's kind of like everybody gets a fair deal. They're getting something out of the deal and you're getting a point out of the deal. So long story short, first two buildings, peddler and marketplace are good. When should you build that mason? The mason is the tile that allows people to build the stone buildings. As I said, if you're building with favors, you don't even want to see this on the board along with the lawyer. If you're doing the building rush, you do want this on the board. But usually I think like the third building is a good spot for it. If you really want to make things interesting, build this as the first building. That tends for a very wacky and interesting game as players will sort of go nuts for it. One thing about building the mason, if you're going to build the mason, especially early, it's good to have already gotten the stone cube to use the mason. Because if you build that mason and you can't use it, then you're just helping somebody else. Sometimes when you're choosing what to build, you can see that one of your opponents is going to build after you. And if you can build the one building tile that only they can build, then that's a wonderful thing. Obviously, everyone wants to build those stone farms first. These are the ones that give three cubes and they give the owner one cube. These are undeniably powerful if they're built early. After you get to that gold mine, then those farms become more questionable. And you're probably going to want to build the architect or the bank. There's another minor strategy we haven't talked about, which involves using the church. The church gives you a favor and a cute little strategy is to combine the lawyer and the church and sort of do that every turn. You do this by first building the church and getting a favor and then going to the lawyer and getting a residence, putting the residence over the church so the church is available again. And then you build the church and then you lawyer it and then you build the church and then you lawyer it. It's fun, but tricky to pull off as it's very easy for opponents to get in the way of this. I think in the two-player game, this is a, a much stronger strategy. And most of the time, in order to win this game, you're going to look to try to build one or maybe two of those blue buildings. And setting up, you're going to have to set up turns in advance to get the gold for that. There may come a point in the mid to late game where you realize you're not going to get one of those blue buildings. At that point, your job is just to get cubes. Get non-gold cubes and make sure you get in the castle because the only way to counter not getting blue buildings is to build enough sections in the castle. And you may also end up pushing the end of the game so people don't get so many of those blue buildings. Or you will lose. Those are all the tips I have for you on being aware of the number of players, knowing what buildings to go to, which buildings to buy, and when to go to the castle. Part four, pulling it all together. All right, so that was a lot. And you may want to re-listen to this episode after playing a game or two, and some of these things might start to make more sense. But let's review the key points from the whole discussion. Money is critical. Make sure you're getting enough money. You're also going to want to balance the other elements. Except in extenuating circumstances, you really don't want to overextend as it could crush you for a turn or two. Early in the game, and I mean within the two, first two or three turns, comes that critical fork where you have to decide how you're going to go about trying to win this game. Whether you're going to try to build your tiles through getting favors or building by using the building tiles. So you're going to go one of those two directions, either pushing it to the mid-game and setting up to build the stone buildings with the favors or trying to execute a building rush and holding on to the end of the game. Getting a big money or a big cube advantage can be very strong in this game, and the number of players can greatly affect this game. 
Lastly, you really need to plan for your end game. Trying to plan to build that huge blue building or going to that castle delivery and, and delivering like eight batches and making sure that you don't get shut out being able to get those favors or deliver your resources to the castle. It's just that easy. Well, I hope I've given you some things to think about. I hope this discussion will make you a better Kalis player. And I am not the total authoritarian expert on this game. I'd love to hear mistakes that I made. If you are a Kalis expert, or if you disagree with some of the points that I've made, or if I missed some strategies from the game, please let me know on the thread there at the Guild. Also, as this is the debut episode of the How to Win series, I'd like to hear what you think about this series, whether you'd like to see future episodes on future games, which games you'd like to see, and what you thought of the format. I really enjoyed recording this. There's something great about talking about your favorite game. Who knows, maybe I can get some guest stars who are really experts at some of these great games to discuss some good strategy with. We shall see what the future holds. If you listen this long to Kayla's strategy, you must really like the game. And if you really like the game, I hope you will participate in Calibration 2, The Provo Strikes Back. All you have to do to show your support for this event and for Kalis in general is to go to the link there at the guild and add your name to the list of players around the world who are going to play. It's a personal challenge to you, listeners. How many of you can we get to participate? The Calibration is all about sharing this great game. I hope you'll partake. I challenge you to play one game of Kalis between May 16th and May 22nd, 2011. Calibration, second annual edition. That's it for me for today. Don't worry, we'll be back in May, and I'll have another great game to teach you how to play. So long from Buffalo. This has been Ryan Sturm of the How to Play Podcast. One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play Podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Sturm. How to Play is not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play Podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own, and that is due to your own continuing support please consider supporting the show in some way today. I love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games. Thanks for listening. The How to Play podcast is part of the Dice Tower Network, the premier board gaming media network, featuring Ludology and the flagship podcast, The Dice Tower. For more information on these shows and much more, please visit www.thedicetower.com.